Welcome, bienvenidos to La Cura Podcast, decolonizing Latinx health and reclaiming traditional healing. I'm your host, Francisca Porchas Coronado. This podcast is a project of Mi Gente in collaboration with Resilient Strategies. Mi Gente is a political home of Latinx people that is pro-Black, pro-woman, pro-queer, pro-migrant, pro-poor, because our community is all that and more. Resilient Strategies is a healing justice project transforming the impact of state violence on our bodies and the collective as a critical part of liberation. Welcome, everybody, to La Cura. We're so happy to have my friend Belia Mayeno Saavedra today in conversation with us about all kinds of good stuff. But the heart of it is um, we want to talk about conflict. What is it? How do we understand it? How do we relate to it? And also ways in which we can uh, lean into conflict in a grounded way that can lead to more transformation and more connection and ways in which we can stay in connection at the same time that we do all that with others that we're in conflict with. So uh, a little disclaimer before I introduce Belia is that we actually recorded this episode in Louisville, Kentucky. We didn't happen to both be there at the same time. I actually made a very conscious choice to invite Belia to Louisville, because the Mi Gente National Gathering of Members was held in Louisville, Kentucky back in December. And we were super excited about recording a live episode. And, you know, Mi Gente is a national Latinx hub for all kinds of beautiful, powerful movement work. And we thought that this was a perfect conversation to have among movement family. And the recording went beautifully. I mean, the conversation, not the recording, the recording actually went terribly. <laughs> the conversation went great. Um, and then I checked the recording and the recording was awful, mostly because there was some technical stuff that went all bad. And um, after I almost shed a tear and through whatever I was holding across the room from frustration because it was beautiful. It was powerful. And also it just, it took a lot of energy and resources to, to make it happen. And, um, and I wanted to make sure that it, Belia knew how much it was appreciated. Um, and also, you know, it was, it was sacrificed in some ways. And so it all worked out. Uh, Belia is amazing and understanding and we're about to do this again. And I think it's going to be even a, a better conversation given that we've had a little practice. Um, so before going into the conversation, I wanted to introduce you formally and tell you a little bit about who Belia is. Um, so Belia Mayeno Saavedra, also known as Ochun Bumi, is a Chicana, Japanese, and Ashkenazi descendant, intuitive coach, and somatic learning practitioner who works with Black, Indigenous, people of color to grow their sense of choice and power in spirit and body. 
She has trained in the lineage of general somatics since 2015 and read tarot for 25 years, since her grandmother gave her her first deck of cards at age 13. For more than a decade, her work centered incarcerated youth and survivors of sexual violence. More recently, she has trained hundreds of educators in restorative justice, circle keeping, and trauma-sensitive practices. And as Lukumi Priestess of Ochun Ibu Anya, she is committed to uplifting Ochun's principles of collective care, dignifying feminine knowledge systems, finding balance between holding space and powerful leadership interventions, skillful conflict navigation, and self-love as liberatory practice for the sake of individual and institutional transformation. She is hella from the Bay, currently lives in Tongva Territory, Apichianga, a.k.a. Boyle Heights, Los Angeles. So welcome to La Cura Podcast, Belia. Thank you so much for having me. And also just thank you for, you know, rolling with the punches and um, <laughs> for making the trip all the way to Louisville. Um, and you, you took a, I think you took a red eye. I definitely were sleep deprived. We made up for it by eating um, really yummy Southern comfort food. But I just want to appreciate mm-hmm. you for that and for being so generous with us and with me. No problem. And I think like I was kind of reflecting on it after the fact that I think, you know, on a metaphorical level, it totally makes sense that a conflict uh, conversation would have a couple (laughs) drafts. Because I think like, when we think about like, you know, sometimes some of the basis or the root of conflict is being really attached to things looking a certain way and then not really being able to blend or move with Mm. how it does end up looking, that this is a great practice ground to be like, okay, so it didn't look the way that we originally intended it. And what a cool ass (laughs) opportunity to practice like being with what is, which I think is a hella relevant skill for conflict navigation. That actually helps me. um, That just helps me because honestly, I'll be real talking about conflict I heard it I heard it like (laughs) first of all this is like classic it's so good that you're actually bringing it to this because I remember the next day the person who was doing the the sound came up to me he's like have you checked it and I was like I don't want to and he's like are you serious I was like no I really don't want to like if it didn't come out okay it'll ruin my day and and I was like, mm. mind you, like, you know, I brought this person all the way across the country and I brought my baby all across the country. I'm very sleep deprived and it better have mm. come out okay. So then literally get home. I didn't want to check it. I was in avoidance <laughs> for like three weeks. I finally check it. <laughs> and I had a feeling too. check it. It's terrible. Like I sound really loud and Belia sounds like she's, I don't know, talking to me from like five miles away. <laughs> and then... <laughs> Literally the first time in my life I have ever been accused of sounding quiet. So, um, and so then I I just sit on it. I'm like, I don't want to tell Belia. I don't want to tell. I don't know why because it made no sense. Like, obviously, um, you know, I I knew you were going to be understanding, but there was a part of me that was like scared. Again, like going back to the conversation which we're going to go into of like sacrificing belong, like feeling you're sacrificing belonging in some ways or connection where you're just like. Oh, she's going to be so annoyed at me. Like narrative in my head of like how annoyed maybe I was at myself and it. And so it literally took me like a good month to tell Belia like, hey, so by the way, it didn't record well and we have to do it again. Are you okay with that? And just, you know, but you're right. Like that's so, everything you're saying makes so much sense that this would be a good lesson also in 
in that and holding that. With that and that great grounding you did for us, <laughs> um, I wanted to go in, mm. in, in into the conversation of what is conflict? You're somebody who's, I think, navigated, obviously, with, with so many years of restorative justice practice and circle keeping and working with incarcerated, formerly incarcerated youth and um, survivors of sexual violence. Um, how would you describe uh, what we now sort of avoid <laughs> or engage in um, as conflict? Mm -hmm. hmm. So I think on an interpersonal level, which I would say I'm the most familiar with in terms of work, but also just my own life, um, I borrow really heavily from uh nonviolent communications definition around what conflict is and what it arises from. There's critiques to be made of nonviolent communication, which we can get to a little later. But one of the things that they do posit that I hella appreciate is that um, fundamentally everybody, every human is like has a certain kind of universal set of needs that we all have a right to. And um those needs actually never come into uh, conflict with each other. Like your right to love is never going to be, and, and be loved is never going to be in conflict with me also having a right to love and be loved, for instance, as one of the universal needs being love. But if we use strategies to try and get those needs met that cause harm to each other or transgress some sort of cultural value that one of us might be uh, respectively holding or assumptions that the person on the other side of the conflict might be having, then that expresses itself as conflict. So really what we're looking at is like people using non-complementary strategies to meet their needs. Now, when it's like on a larger sort of macro scale, it might be you know, I'm sure like the political science people will be much better at articulating it than me, but it's not necessarily that level of conflict isn't necessarily always around needs. For instance, like if there is like a capitalist global power that wants to be more greedy and extractive in their relationships with the earth, that's not because they need anything. It's just from a philosophy or a way of relating to life on earth um, that then does harm another group or another land. Does that make sense? Like the distinction that I feel like individually, a lot of times it's about strategies to meet needs. And then on a macro level, a lot of times to me, at least I could be wrong, but like it's about conflicting strategies to meet a certain uh, philosophy or worldview that's not necessarily grounded in needs. Does that make sense? There's also conflict at scale that yeah. is rooted in a very different mm -hmm very different ideology or non-need, I guess I would say, right? Yeah. And so I feel like in the, the larger scale ones, it could be about needs. Like in the case of like these like water protectors, that's really fundamentally about folks defending their needs and their relationship to the land. But then there's other conflicts that are not necessarily about need and just more like about greed. And I don't think greed is a universal need. I don't intend to be rhyming as much as I am right now, but <laughs> it's happening. <laughs> right. This extractive piece that you were talking about um, versus need. Um, versus mm -hmm. exchange. Yeah. And individually, there can be people who are relating to each other extractively, but I feel like a lot of times, most of the time that I'm seeing stuff individually or in small groups or in communities, it really is fundamentally about people trying to get their needs met and 
um, using strategies that ultimately might be harmful towards themselves mm. or towards other people. And that's the kind of, um, I guess, scale of conflict that I feel probably the most familiar with um, work-wise and as an individual. People trying to get their needs met versus people trying to get their greed <laughs> met in a lot of ways, right? <laughs> yeah. Satisfied. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's the tricky part no. about greed is that it never gets satisfied. So that's where we end up in these like right. endless yeah. conflicts. Absolutely. And so mm -hmm. I was curious about, given all this practice of, uh, you know, that you've navigated tension, conflict, resolution, restoration, transformation. It requires a high level of vulnerability. It requires, you know, a whole lot of, of skill. And obviously you, you've learned a lot in the process, but curious about, were you one of those folks that was, that your nature was sort of like naturally in some ways leaned into uh, tension and, and conflict or that level of vulnerability? Or, uh, or were you socialized that way? Or was it more of like, shying away. There's like the nurture versus um, nature part. And I feel like some of us, you know, it's hard as time sometimes decipher which one we like, what we're influenced by the most. Um, how did you relate to conflict? So I think it's kind of a mixture of nature, nurture, kind of conditioning the role that I had inside of my family, all that good stuff or not good, <laughs> not easy stuff. Um, I would say part of it in terms of like philosophically is my mom's family is a uh, Buddhist and my grandma was a Zen Buddhist priest. She's passed now, but I was raised really in that context in my maternal side. And, um, So I think like this, you know, some of the principles inside of Buddhism that talks about like how um, intense attachment to things can really increase or amplify our suffering, I think is, is really relevant inside of conversations or navigation of conflict. Another spiritual aspect being that I think, you know, the some of the medicine that I think children of Ochun, because um, I'm initiated to Ochun Ibuanya, brings um, into the world, especially there's uh, pataki or like these sacred stories about Ochun Ibuanya, specifically like bear the drum of hmm. peace rather than the war drum, that there is probably something in my spiritual DNA or the pact that I made with Ochun before I was born that's about kind of being some sort of bearer of the drum of peace or like the way that Ochun um, is really heavily associated with like skillfully showing up in conflict that's not necessarily about like the blunt force of like, let's say <laughs> like Ogun, for instance. Um So that's part of it, I think, spiritually. But I also think there's a couple other pieces. One, um, I, I am the child of somebody who navigated addiction through a lot of his life and then also sometimes was targeted um, for like ongoing incarceration and, and really lived in the aftermath of being somebody who was pushed out of school into the school to prison pipeline. I was a little kid that would be in the middle of crisis. And as a result of figuring out unintentionally kind of how to survive that, I am somebody who tends to stay pretty calm um, when <laughs> everybody else is kind of freaking out. And 
I don't always think that that's the best response. You know, sometimes like I'll, I'll realize like, I, especially before I started doing work in somatics, like that I would be like, damn, I was hella calm in that. But I actually don't even really remember what I did or said. And I was kind of on this very deep trauma survival autopilot that didn't really allow me to fully be there. And that's a great survival strategy. And there's learning inside of that. Um, for me to do or that I have had to do and still I'm learning about how to be able to still be present to myself and my own experience. And yeah. it's still a good skill to have. <laughs> so I'm kind of like the person when people are freaking out that they call to be <laughs> like, I'm losing my shit. What do I do? And 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 that has mapped on well to a philosophy that I find really helpful or kind of like a dicho or something or like a mantra that I, rep- I um, repeat to myself inside of conflict, which is like, mm. nothing is wrong here. And that doesn't mean that there's not things that need to be changed or attended to for the sake of healing or peace or care or being more deeply in alignment with our values about who and how we want to be with each other. And at the same time, going in with a, there's something's wrong that needs to be fixed. One has a very uh, seductive ego trap of like, oh, and I yes. am the person to do the fixing. Hello, <laughs> which is not great in conflict, uh, not particularly helpful. Although it feels juicy and good sometimes to tell yes. ourselves that that's who we are. It's not really helpful. It's really a terrible quality or to have organizing. Yeah, a terrible practice to be in. It is not helpful. Um, It's very tempting, but it's not helpful. And then two, it's kind of like, I don't know, I think I heard an elder say a long time ago, like, you know, if you're like overly solution problem solving oriented, it's kind of like being a hammer. And then if you're a hammer all the time, like the whole world starts to look like nails. Um. And so I and so I feel like the other thing of coming into a, a conflict that can be really helpful is like that there's nothing wrong here. Like everybody still has a right to their needs. Everybody like is trying to do the best they can with what they know, largely. And it's not working, but how to like remain in a place of like curiosity and willingness from a nothing is wrong here has been helpful. And finally. I'll say that the other piece around, you know, my parent being somebody who was locked up a lot, like he was a complicated dude. My dad, Zibaya, he passed away in 2016. And I love him so, so, so much. And part of what I think his gift was to me was to um, help me practice like how to love a really complicated person who caused harm, but also uh, like brought me immense joy and like a really incredible father-daughter relationship once I was an adult and could participate in it differently. So I feel like he was, you know, my first and best and most powerful teacher in like the other piece of conflict that I think is really important and fundamental in particular to transformative justice, which is like Mm -hmm. a commitment to not throwing people away, even after they've caused harm or they've made really um, depthful mistakes. And so I feel like all of that kind of smushed and then generative somatics and lukumi and and transformative justice, all those things like helped me integrate those things. <laughs> and not that I'm perfect at it at all, girl. Let me tell you, if you talk to anybody that I dated from like <laughs> 1996 until like, 
I don't know, 2013, they would be like, that broad is not restorative. <laughs> and they wouldn't be wrong. <laughs> so um, I think it's like, it's an ongoing process. And I think there's skills that we pick up along the way. And there's like the ache that I think spirit gives us mm. that are all like the oh. salsita in the mix. Hopefully that long ass answer made sense. So many gems to pull from it. Um, I think what you said around, you know, if you feel like you're a hammer, I don't know if these are your exact words, but like if you see yourself as a hammer, then everything is going to look like nails is very profound. And I think Mm -hmm. that um, especially because we're in a society that, that makes us feel like we have to become a hammer often and that we're constantly trying to protect ourselves and in survival mode and, and coping with things that are really old uh, still that are still living in our bodies and in mm-hmm. our narratives and our behaviors. And, and so, yeah, like we literally go around thinking and seeing nails, thinking about everybody being a nail, seeing nails and not people, uh, situations that are nails. And you're right. And I think that that's a good connection to what you said around the ego, whether you're the person trying to, come in and help resolve the situation or just it feeding our egos in general, right? And I think we talked a little bit about this this thing around good and evil and this thing around, you know, the angels and the demons and like mm-hmm. the good and bad and the the victim and the the perpetrator that is often um the way in which we relate to having been offended or hurt or whatever that is. But um curious about how you came to this uh sort of realization around you you named 2013 <laughs> as it seems like for everything from 96 to 2013 so some there was a serious <laughs> breakthrough in 2013 <laughs> or post <laughs> um and the piece around <laughs> around the ego and realizing the hammer piece like how does one sort of come to to some level of self-awareness or where does one even start, you know? Well, uh, when you said a serious breakthrough in 2013, I would change it. I would edit it with a highlighter to a serious breakup <laughs> in 2013. But I, I think that actually, like, that's a really um, powerful example um, because I, I – so I moved to Los Angeles to be with a partner who I was, like, beyond, like, the first, like, real, like – you know, mm, yes, nose wide open ass love, you know, <laughs> um, the kind that will get you to relocate, you know, your whole life. What I saw what happened in there is that there was like, there was a quality of the kind of connection and communication that we had when we lived far apart. Cause we were together mm-hmm. for like a year and a half before I moved here. That then when actually like in real time and we were facing like all sorts of like different challenges, like building a home together and navigating all types of things that like I realized the extent to which I was using strategies to kind of go back to what I was talking about with conflict that just actually weren't in alignment with who and how I wanted to be for one, but also weren't going to get me the shit that I wanted. So like a really silly example would be that he was like a very, um, you know, out in the community, like a musician and a community organizer. And so we would go to parties and then he would be like, okay, you good, babe? And then like go and just, you know, Mm -hmm. go, you know, socialize. Um, 
And then because I was new and I'm kind of like an awkward turtle at parties sometimes, like I would kind of be like in the <laughs> corner, like, well, I don't have any friends. Right. And then I would be really upset with him for Dika yeah. like leaving me. Right. And so then it would turn into like a whole thing because like he would come back and I would give him the silent treatment because that's what I saw a lot of growing up. Like, oh, if I'd be really stank to you, then you'll feel bad and you'll do something different, which is something that I saw work really well sometimes in my community and my family. But how different was that from but like what I actually wanted, which was connection with this person that I loved. So it's like I was mad that I wasn't getting connection. So then I doubled down on disconnecting to try and force him to connect with me more. Right. Like logically, that just doesn't make any sense. Um, and so like as I started to also at that time, like deepen more in the practice around like restorative justice and transformative justice and like really looking at nonviolent communication and needs and the strategies that we use. Like I realized the extent to which like we, you know, we had a really very difficult, hard breakup that was a, you know, result of us like really both being very deeply um, conditioned and trained towards some like unhelpful strategies. And now in retrospect, knowing that, like, I feel so much forgiveness for him, but also for myself and like, damn, like we both wanted these things from each other that we actually didn't have the skills to provide at that time. And I think in, and going through the breakup, I would want to be like, man, right. you know, like he hella sucks. Cause whoa, whoa, whoa. And he did make some harmful choices, but like really what it was, was that there's like a ton of important skills that it takes to be in relationship. A great many of us, and I count myself in this sometimes, like our desire to be in relationship many, many times outsizes the skills that we actually have mm. to be in those relationships well. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be in them, right? It's not like I'm a wait till I'm 100% like fixed and all cool and like a thousand percent like integrated before I'm allowed to be in love. And without a commitment to like practicing those skills together that's grounded in like a shared vision for what we want the quality of our relationships to be, whether they be romantic or family or community or political family, it's there's mm. a higher likelihood of conflict. And what I think is like kind of a very deep like postscript inside of this is that he um, he passed away uh, la last year during the summer. Um, he was uh, killed, actually. One of the greatest regrets that I have inside of that is like that we didn't actually ever move back towards being friends again. Like we had forgiven each other. We did a process. We like had come to a forgiving place. But I'm like, man, you know, if I had had a different set of skills or been able to like make a different kind of request, like I would have gotten to see my friend right. with the life that he had left on this earth. And so it really also brought into really like sharp relief, like what the costs are sometimes of like holding on grudges past the point that actually they don't even feel like they make sense anymore. Like we had come to resolution, but I missed out on, you know, some good years of what I think could have been like a really incredible friendship with somebody that I did love and do still love in a certain way because I didn't know how to like say, hey, I miss you. We resolved right. our funk, but like also I miss my friend. 
and and that's a skill and it and it has a vulnerability piece that you were bringing up that I'm like mm-hmm. I'm actually really not comfortable with vulnerability at all. Like there's a certain level of it, but like the kind that comes with like you know, deeply being like, hey, like I need you or I need help or I miss you. Like it's it's never come easy for me. And that means that it it then is inviting me to practice it more. And I wish I had practiced it more in that situation. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I really appreciate it. And it also reminds me of the piece around feeling more comfortable and more skilled and more aware in conflict. It's like, how do we also... Um, feel more comfortable, skilled, and aware um, in just relationship in general and in love and and also the peace around forgiveness, right? It, uh, once the awareness hits, it's like uh, you talked about this in Louisville, like shame, right? Um, you didn't say this right now in your story, but it makes it reminds me of people that end up wow. feeling shame and and sometimes that's the thing that kind of holds us back. It's, touched, uh, it's also attached to resentment and then the reflection piece ends up filling us with sometimes like regret, but also like the deeper pieces is, is shame. And how do we make our, our, how do we make our way back to each other under different terms and, you know, in different ways. And so mm-hmm. at some point I'd love to have, you know, another few episodes with you on just being in romantic relationships, which I think all of us could, um, greatly benefit from in um in conversing about these things you know we don't know how to be um you know in in love definitely for a different episode <laughs> and i think we're learning alongside each other and i think a lot of us you know haven't um necessarily seen mm-hmm. romantic love like practiced in a way that feels completely like welcoming or you know there's just a lot of complication around that which totally makes sense in the context of intergenerational trauma and heteronormativity and all these like big forces that are kind of putting their you know their grip around something as like you know kind of pure as like the experience of love. I think the thing is, is that like when we also then put another layer on top of that, which should circle back to what you were talking about, about like the way that we're so like soaking in Christian dominance and how that um, really feeds this like ongoing narrative of an expectation of someone has to be good and someone has to be evil. And we just have to figure out who the good mm-hmm. ones are and who the evil ones are to punish them. And so we end up in lots of different types of relationships, not only romantic, although romantic ones can be super, you know, activating or triggering in this sense that like there, that this like kind of flavor of trying to find like the good guy, the bad guy, the angel, the demon, like who gets to call themselves good and who gets named as or Mm -hmm. labeled as like the evil or the bad or the wrong one. Um, That puts a whole nother kind of like really tight chokehold around like the ways that we can be in relationship. And what I love about the offerings that transformative justice makes is really about like how the good or the evil or the bad guy or the one won't won't like that's not actually really relevant lots of times when we're talking about people that we love. And and that good or evil narrative and having to put it on someone else or put it on ourselves is I think has this other tentacles that then go into the shame piece. And shame serves actually a pretty uh, 
quick function to kind of get us to contract and close up really quickly. Um, Literally, physically, shame can really like cause us to like tighten up in our chest or our throat or our bellies or, you know, our butt cheeks. You never know where shame can cause a a contraction uh, physically and spiritually and emotionally. And like, it's actually shame really makes a lot of sense in some ways, not because we should be feeling shame, but that it accomplishes Mm. a really quick closing, which is a very like protective instinct. Right. And so a lot of the work that I'm interested in doing and that I see other people doing dope ass work in is like, instead of, relying on shame to really quickly help us kind of turn into sea anemones and like retract hella quick the way anemones do. That's a really smart anemone response. And if I love you, you're my comadre, you're my homie, you're my boo, whatever. Like maybe I don't want to see you as like uh, the thing that's like coming to attack my little anemone heart. Does that make sense? And so like what other choices are available to me that I can turn into, Mm -hmm. that I can turn towards for the sake of the care that I feel for you? And shame is less helpful when we're we're trying to get off our little anemone rock in the sea and like be in a different kind of like blossoming. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And um, I feel like I want to come back to shame and I'm going to make a go into like a sharp turn Real quick around going back to something you named, mm-hmm. which is when you started telling the story of this relationship or the break, breakup breakthrough and the, you know, one of the ways in which people relate to conflict is exactly what you're saying, which is we, we end up wanting to disconnect in order to build connection. So I'd love for us to go a little bit onto some of the different mm-hmm. ways, not to pathologize anyone, but I, I do believe there are categories in which we deal with conflict. And I do believe there are personalities. And this is just me watching, not being an expert in conflict or having, um, I think, theorized enough about it or almost at all, just paying attention. But like one of the ways in which people engage in conflict, because you think you're not engaging, but you are. Basic way of describing it is just passive aggressiveness. But what it is, is like being disconnected, but still seeking a lot of connection um, and thinking that disconnection can get us there is a really beautiful way of describing it. Uh, That makes it really accessible for people to understand. And something that I'm definitely very familiar with. And I think something that I would say a lot of people that are Latinx engage in. And I I can only speak for some of our folks that like really uh, hope that, you know, they throw like, you know, invisible darts at each other and they make their discontent and their anger and their frustration, disappointment, whatever it is so obvious to the other person in in trying to show that they're ignoring them or avoiding them or turning their head or, you know what I mean? It's like, there's so much action in that inaction and so much that people are communicating to each other. In Louisville, we talked about like some of the basic things that we seek as like, that's in our nature as human beings. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about at the end of the day, what is it that we want and, and why do we end up reacting in that way of like, 
trying to be either passive aggressive or, or be disconnected in an effort to want to be connected. So I will say a couple of things at the top. One is that this is going to be like very broad strokes. There's lots of individual nuance in between people respectively of why we do the things we do. Um, and as like a mixed race person who is Chicana, but also uh, Japanese American, I will say that passive aggression is <laughs> definitely showing up in my Japanese American uh, experience as well. So a, a lot of folks uh, have their own uh, flavors of these strategies individually, but also sometimes like uh, community wise. And one of the things that I feel like I, I love about the generative somatics or political somat politicized somatics approach is that it first like dignifies why we might do it that way. And it's not like, oh, passive aggression is bad, which I don't think that you said either. But like, I feel like this thing of like, well, if we can be with for a second, passive aggression, what it might take care of in these kind of big sort of buckets Um is that all humans, um, from what I've learned in this methodology and in a lot of trauma sensitivity work, is like humans desire safety, belonging, and dignity on individual and collective scales, right? And passive aggression, a lot of times, kind of speaking to what you're doing, you're saying about connection, disconnection for the sake of connection, passive aggression can sometimes be a way of like, I'm trying to articulate to you that you did something that hurt me but I'm not going to do it so fully that I ever have to 100% like risk not belonging. And so like so people sometimes will be like passive aggressive as a way to be like I'm trying to communicate an experience or a feeling or a whatever. Like there's something I'm trying to get across. But if I completely explicitly name it and just like, you know, square up or start funk, that might be outside of the cultural boundaries that we say that we sort of or that we um, subconsciously require in order yeah. to continue to have belonging. Does that make sense? So like um, if there might be in certain communities and I, and I, I have seen this where it's like there are folks who are like, no, it's part of our collective cultural practice that if it's funk, it's funk. And I'm going to tell you. And if you don't tell me when it's funk, you're fake. And actually mm -hmm. you don't get belonging because you're fake. Right. Um, there's like families and groups of friends and whole entire ass cultures that that's much more of their get down, right? I would say that coming from some other cultural backgrounds that actually like naming things explicitly potentially is a transgression that makes people risk their um, membership or their participation or their belonging in a particular identity group or a particular family group that actually passive aggression totally makes sense because it's kind of like a tension in between somebody expressing a need or an experience and still trying to take care of their belonging, um, which is smart. Is it helpful all the time? <laughs> I would not say yes. <laughs> like it's not always the most deeply in our our um, values that we might want if we were like, let's say, saying like, I actually really want to hold a value of truthfulness or transparency or a value of conflict as generative or one of those things. But it is a, a smart choice in the immediate. Now, what I think is a cool 
tweak to put on it, though, after we dignify why that might be a smart strategy in some ways is to be like, okay, so that's one strategy. And then what are some other strategies that we can try on and practice together that actually don't access to um, participate in that kind of behavior because other choices that feel more generative or more connected also feel more real to us. And that is where I think the work of um, somatic practice and specifically politicized somatic practice can come in to be like, we actually have to teach our bodies these other options, not only our brains, because otherwise we end up in this thing where it's like, yo, <laughs> next time I have funk with somebody or I get into conflict, I swear I'm going to do one, one, one. I'm going to do X, Y, Z next time, next time. Cause I read this really cool book or I watched <laughs> this really cool YouTube video and I'm so woke now. Right. And then the conflict happens and lo and behold, we do exactly the same thing right. that we've always done because that's the thing that we're most practiced in and we've gotten a ton of shaping towards. So it makes sense why we would keep doing it. And so the answer is not to put a bunch of shame on ourselves or make ourselves the bad guy and kind of self-flagellate for not doing things differently. It's more like getting um, a sense of like, well, what else is there for me and for us to learn for the sake of what values and how can the conversation and the work switch over to that that doesn't require anybody having to get shit on or be bad. In fact, if people are being posited as bad or shameful or unworthy, they're way less likely to move towards a di different option. Right. So it's like sometimes it's just not safe, to be honest, in the way that you would want to. Yeah. And sometimes it is actually safe and mm -hmm. we need a little bit more practice or reflection or assessment from our own discernment to notice, oh, I'm in a different situation now where I can tell the truth. Like I'm at work now. I'm not trying to survive in a family that maybe had violent consequences for me to tell the truth. I'm here now. And one of the, the things that trauma does inside of our bodies and our experiences is makes it sometimes hard to be in real time for what's happening right now. Um, and then we sort of fall back on what we've done to survive before. And again, what we've done to survive before is really incredible and it's really wise. And it might be the reasons why me and you are alive right now to even be having this conversation. And sometimes the things that we do to survive are not the things that are most in line with our values or the kind of work or world that we're trying to build. Right. And also what you said, that's really important, which is like our physiology, our little nervous system might be used to this other thing forever and ever and ever. Yeah, <laughs> uh, We were socialized that way. That's been our practice. That's what the world around us has like the world around us has communicated to us that it wasn't safe. Mm -hmm. And so we've trained our physiology to do certain things. And so how do we begin to take more risks, lean in? even though our own body is going to be like, eh, I don't want to do that. Okay. And then that, that will actually open up possibility for us to literally transform how our body reacts mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. next time and the time after that and the time after that, which I think is, yeah, very important. Yeah. And it's so important because it's like our body actually is because it's the thing that all action moves through, right? Um, where we turn concept into concrete. Our bodies actually have to believe and know that it is uh, safe or allowable to make these other choices. And so I think sometimes, at least in my experience of like sort of Western talk therapy, 
is I might get like really clear on like, okay, boo, you got some serious abandonment issues. (laughs) You have some abandonment issues. They show up in your relationships and I might know why I have them. But then sometimes it actually can be really tricky because I've had this experience of like, okay, so you know that you do this thing and you know why you do it. Why the hell do you keep doing it then? And then I can get like really, you know, angry or impatient with myself for not making a different choice. And so that's why a lot of the work that's coming out now where people are really looking at like the body is the place of aliveness and really the ground to make those shifts. It's not only happening in our head. And I think another really deeply unfortunate inheritance that we have from, you know, colonization and white supremacy is that like the kind of post enlightenment, I think, therefore I am (laughs) um, way of understanding the world doesn't allow for all of us, including our bodies, our spirits, our different identities to really be in the conversation. And so the shift towards the body really gives us, or the shift back to the body, to be honest, because I think a lot of us come from people who knew this. We've just forgotten a little bit on the way. The shift back towards the body, I think, like makes the um, conversation and the work and the relationships way more expansive. And so- where does the ego fall in all of this? Because I'll speak from my own experience, like, um, you know, being in, in relationship, I think I would definitely speak about my own, like, you know, romantic relationship, my own relationship with my partner, even currently, I think that I've definitely made mistakes. And I think, I think definitely because of all the things you're saying of like being in a space where, with me, it was just like a, a space of always being in conflict. My family was always fighting out loud, out of pocket, saying all kinds of like just off, like off the hook things, offensive things, mm-hmm. hurtful things, harmful things, things that I'm like, I don't know how people are going to bounce back from that, you know, especially, especially people that were older than me that shouldn't have been talking to each other in that way or setting that example. But, um, but I, you know, again, like you were saying about your father, like I love them and I forgive them and I, I understand and I see them as adults. Um, and with that being said, I feel like there's been times when I've definitely engaged in that, like a disconnection in terms a, a disconnection to build connection. Um, but even though I knew it was safe to name what I was upset about, um, because, you know, I've been with my partner for, and, you know, in 20 23, it'll be 20 years, which is crazy. And I'm thinking that sometimes it was just my ego of like, I knew I was wrong, but some level of self-righteousness of some level of me making up my own narrative was going to feed that whole vic- like victim and perpetrator, evil and good sort of narrative. And as long as I didn't name it, then that meant I wasn't going to be called out or be proven wrong. And then I could just remain <laughs> in this place where I was going to continue to center myself as a victim. I mean, I don't know if I just answered my own question, but the ego also has so much to do <laughs> with, with sometimes how we react. I guess part of me, you know, at different points didn't know it was safe. Just the self-righteousness of like, if I could just continue to like make you a bad person, then, then I'll just be right, you know? And obviously that's also a protective mechanism in, in conflict and, but then that also doesn't, it's not like, 
in terms of like people building disconnection to build connection, I'm like, that is so not trying to build connection. That's just me at the end of the day, like maybe I guess keeping myself safe, wanting to be right. I don't know. But, um, but I think about a lot of people mm-hmm. like that. Like we have members in the organization that I've worked with um, for five years that they know they can approach somebody. They're just really mad. They literally won't come back for months at a time because they're so pissed and I've had conversations with them as the organizer and be like, just have a conversation. I've checked in with them. I've asked them what it's about. I'm not going to represent them for you, but they're really willing to talk to you, sit down and have a conversation. They're like, no. And they won't come back for months. <laughs> you know? So I'm curious about the ego piece. So I'll say to kind of, as a disclaimer that I know that like the ego as a concept has like some pretty um, specific meaning inside of like certain strands of psychology and I'm not a therapist and I'm not a psychologist. So I'm going to be using it perhaps in a way that is uh, not (laughs) correct, (laughs) but for um, to kind of like in the pop culture shorthand of the way that I understand the ego, um, I think that our egos one tend to like things to be as expedient as possible like they like things to be accomplished quickly like have a hard time with sort of like um ambiguity and slowness and so i almost when you were talking i sort of had this like image of like you know how if you were going to take like a like a wheelbarrow down like a like a dirt path every day for hella years and the wheelbarrow would just make like a little (laughs) groove that would make it easier to move up and down Mm -hmm. that I think that sometimes the ego and maybe even like the pathways in our brain I'm not a like neuroscientist so I might be just making this up but like I feel like sometimes like the ego kind of sees things as like okay here's the well-worn pathway and then at the end of that is like um the arrival at uh unchanging goodness (laughs) And I want to be unchangingly good and right. And and I think in a way, we sort of then put that on, like, if I'm unchangingly good and right, then mm. I'll be deserving or then I'll be safe or I'll be worthy or I'll be loved or whatever we think that, like, our special frosting that we put on <laughs> on that. But I think that, like, one, to kind of move out of the realm of the ego for a second, like, how does conflict change when it's like, actually, nobody's worthiness is at issue here. I don't agree with the strategy you used. It had this impact on me. But it's not actually relevant to talk about who is good here or who is worthy because we both are. Um, and as a part of that, I'm going to have maybe a hard conversation or as a part of that, like I'm going to be in a commitment to listen with my whole body and my whole heart. Right. So I think like that what, from what I understand, again, this is my pop culture, potentially like Instagram version <laughs> of the ego is like that the ego wants to very quickly um, accomplish. So I think it was part of that is that the ego wants to really quickly accomplish a sense of like, goodness, stability, and righteousness. That's not a bad desire to want to be good or to want to be stable or to want to be right. It's just not always the most helpful one, but there's a ton of training that we get towards that being the thing that we're one, going to be able to accomplish, which I don't think that we ever (laughs) are, (laughs) and we're going to be able to be unchangingly right and stable. And there's all sorts of like messed up colonial 
things that we're swimming in that make us believe that. Um, and then two, just like uh, starting to question or discern like the relevance, like, is that that helpful? It's always going to be there. That desire, that wheelbarrow track is always there for all of us. And it's like, and then how do I slow down and notice what other paths are there for me to move down? And what are at the end of those paths? Or what are those the process of moving down that path going to give me or give this relationship or grow this partnership or grow this collective? The question of worthiness is absolutely on point. For me, that's correct. Like That's totally on point that it's about worthiness and it's about obviously coming up in a situation where my worth was not ever named or valued or, you know, acknowledged. And I'm not talking about my relationship with my partner. I'm talking about pre, pre that. And, and also that I do remember, even though you're saying maybe it's your Instagram version, you're completely right. Because (laughs) I remember reading somewhere and I should look to make sure I give credit. We're wired in a way we're animals, you know, we're mammals and we were supposed to be living in nature in the wild. And um, we've, you know, made this society a, a very, comfortable, technology-driven, like built structures, everything we know now, but we were in nature and that we were programmed in a way so that we would be discerning really, really, really fast Um, because we're in the wild and we need to discern a situation really quick and make conclusions and keep ourselves really safe. And, And I think, yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense to what you're saying. It's like, I'm feeling really upset right now. I'm hurt which I need to, you know, analyze why that deeper hurt is there or what it's about, because it's not ever just about what's happening. And I'm going to conclude this really, really quick so that I can make a story up in my head and I can feel safe and I can feel worthy and I can feel all these things, you know? Um, So we're doing what's like, Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, what's primal um, and what we're programmed to do or what our, our nervous systems do very quickly for our own safety. And we move really quickly to that, which then takes me to the point of like another sort of reaction to conflict, which is like, there are cultures that are very, very comfortable with just saying what they think. And the people that are receiving that information, take it, they might argue a little bit, and then they move on. Like I visit in Nigeria and I was blown away. I spent, I visited twice, spent time with Yoruba people, um, which are one very large ethnic group in Nigeria. And they are, they're just like, this is what's up. You see them and you're like, damn, this is about like people are about to stop punching each other. And then they're like, cool. And then they walk away and it's all good. <laughs> and I was like, let me make sure I'm not interpreting shit because obviously I don't speak Yoruba. So I remember talking to a couple of, of my elders there and they're like, yeah, we talk stuff out. We are very passionate about what we have to say. We'll argue. And then we'll just kind of whatever, go about our ways. We might agree to disagree or we end up moving each other. But we don't come back and are like, you know, harping on the same on the same thing um, or like reminding people or continuing to argue about it. We, just, we don't, you know, our, our getting over it might look different, but like we literally talk it out. It might not always be the healthiest, but we just name it. And then we just sort of move on with our day. And I'm just like, wow, you know? (laughs) Um, And so all to say that that is, you know, maybe a good example of like a culture that accepts all that. But then we also are in situations where people will go off, will go off where you're trying to establish your safety and your belonging, maybe not, I don't know, your belonging, I guess, and your dignity, but you're way, way over the top where like maybe that particular situation did not require you to quite 
you know, elevated to that degree <laughs> um, versus the other piece where you just shut down, you disconnect to build connection. This other one is just like you really want to make sure your dignity is respected, but your reaction to a situation is like so over the top that there's harm caused, right? Well, I think the thing is, is I definitely want to also, even though I totally want to dignify the the ways that we've come up with to survive, it doesn't mean that we're not then responsible for sometimes if we create harm as we're, we're doing our very well-practiced survival styles. Um, and there is this kind of mishmash in between like what you were talking about, the like brain firing, where it is like actually good to distinguish in between, well, there's a part of my brain that's trying to help me, you know, lash back out at a saber tooth tiger that might be coming to eat me. Like there's a part of my brain that's set up for that. And um, we're at a point in history where I also could have potential to recognize like that's actually not a saber tooth tiger. That's the love of my life. Maybe I want to respond to them in a different way. I think the other tricky piece or not the tricky piece, but like a layer of the humanness on this is that the kind of the, the reptile like limbic brain that's like very like just about like not being in harm as soon as possible. There's also all this development that human brains have in the prefrontal cortex, which is very much about like logic or reason or um, narrative storytelling. So there's like, there's, I think, accountability that we have about like, actually, there is work that we can do and reflection that is being called of us to like, get clear on what our what the narratives are that we're moving into a situation is. So sometimes when people can be um, a little extra fierce in trying to defend their dignity, maybe that does originate from this like kind of stress or fear response. And there's still accountability for like actually reflecting on like what narratives we pile on top of that to rationalize why that was okay. I think the thing is though, is that even if those like the intentions behind that come from those places of trying to attend to those really uh, intense needs and desires, that doesn't mean that we're not then accountable for the strategies, kind of just circle back to the beginning, that we use in order to accomplish those things. So there is a difference in between kind of what you were saying, where there's this part of our brain that like immediately wants to suss out danger and react to it. We do have a part of our brain that's very oriented towards that. Um, it's like, doesn't even really have like words. It's the part of your brain that like pulls your hand back from the fire before you even know that you got burned. Um, and that's really important. We need that. But we also have this whole other gigantic territory inside of our brains, the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for reason and logic and in particular like narrative and storytelling. So there's kind of a navigation that we need to do inside of our own brains and bodies and systems to be responsible for the narrative that we come up with to rationalize or reason why we might have harmed somebody else. And um, sometimes the narratives or the reasoning that we come up with uh, really double down on harm. And we are responsible for that. So I feel like there's like this kind of balance that we need to be attending to where it's like it, everybody does have a right to have safety, belonging, and dignity. And um, 
we also have a responsibility, especially in relationships that we care about, to uh, be thoughtful and intentional about how we're trying to attend to those things or how we're trying to get them. And I think as a final note, I will say that there is instances where it's like when people's struggles for dignity or safety do require violence. And that's like a like the more macro level stuff where it's like people actually having like armed revolution or struggle for the sake of those things is really different um, when like that makes sense in that context when it's like, oh, actually, that's not a relationship that I care about. And there is fundamental like bone deep conflict in the values and and our rights to our having our way of life. Most of the time, though, that is not necessarily the case in our marriages, in our best friendships, in our community organizing collectives, like those types of things. Like we don't need to bring the fierceness of like trying to upturn the state and like revolution to um, our boo (laughs) necessarily. Like I actually don't want to, you know, (laughs) have a like arm struggle against the love of my life whoever that may be. Um, And it's that kind of discernment that we actually have to be a little bit more rigorous about because I think sometimes um, the tactics that we might use against the state um, are really, really helpful and appropriate for trying to relate to the oppression of the state. If it's somebody that we love, if it's our baby that we're raising, our sister, you know, our like compañeros, like all those things, like that we might not want to relate to them like we're trying to like upturn the state because they're not the state. And um, it requires a different set of skills um, and that we don't have to use quite so much of like our animal reactive brain. And if we do, then what is the work that we have to do to be like, oh, that's what I was doing there. I'm sorry. How did that impact you? Like, what can I do to put things as right as possible in the wake of that? And no one has to be bad. And that is definitely what, because um, this conversation has been so good. And I also know that it's not, it's it's far from being complete. I think that for our part two of this conversation, I really want us to talk about that we can utilize. I think you named some of the reasons why we need to, and but what what would that look like? How do we begin to even be self-aware in that way? I feel like for us, we're not even in a, some people are not even in a place where they can be accountable yet. They're not even self-aware enough or don't even know how do I make myself more self-aware as it's happening or right before it's happening or maybe even right after. Um, what do I do with the shame or what do I do with what comes up? And then there's the piece around acknowledgement and then some level of repair addressing, right? At all degrees. And so I would love to have this conversation in some of the like, pragmatic, practical tools on part two. And then also the last piece is that, um, you know, when we were in Louisville, there were folks in the audience, we had about, I don't know, somewhere between 100 and 150 people, I think. And then people, you know, turned in these little cards that had questions for the conversation that we had and that we didn't actually get to answer, but we will answer in part two of this conversation. So one of them was like, how do we set boundaries with family because of um, homophobia, transphobia, racism? How can we address, combat the practice of disposability when and that we have in our community? Um, 
especially in the organizing community um, around conflict. And so I think you you touched on that a little bit, but these are just uh, questions that came up in Louisville that I would love for us to be able to answer because we promised while we were there. And I think it's also makes for a really interesting conversation. So I just want to say thank you so much for being so generous again and so understanding around all of this, um, you of all people would be, of course, given this conversation. And so, and for all the wisdom that you shared and also, I mean, all the really hard work that you've put in the last, I mean, your whole life, but definitely the last 25 years of practice that you're now sharing these gems with us. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. For listening to La Cura Podcast. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Francisca Pochas Coronado, edited by Rafael Maya. Our music is by Rafael Maya. Please subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can find us on social media at La Cura Podcast. Bye bye, la cura.